And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. Miracles in the minutia. Miracles in the minutia. My friends, each week at 9.30 a.m., we hold the Faith in Life form. It meets upstairs in the Pusey Room. We read books. We hear from faculty members, often visiting ministers or authors, discuss their work. The overall aim is to promote religious literacy and cultural competency, particularly in regards to matters of faith. The theme this semester is faith and uncertainty. One need not be a theologian to understand why. For anybody born of a woman knows that the words of Jesus in John's gospel are absolutely true. In this life, you will have trouble. Jesus doesn't say you might have trouble. Jesus does not say that you may face difficulty, nor does Jesus say that you probably will have to cry sometimes. No, Jesus is quite clear. In this life, you will have trouble. Thus, the questions we have wrestled with this semester involve how do we confront trouble? How do we keep the faith when all evidence points to the contrary? For instance, what do we do when life disappoints and evil appears to prevail? What do we say when illness makes a seemingly premature appearance or when sickness shows up unannounced? What does it mean to celebrate the good news each Sunday when our lives Monday through Saturday seem anything but? Some of you in this sanctuary know what I'm talking about. Oh, you've played by the rules. You attended church not just as a weekly exercise, but as a sincere expression of your faith. When others did wrong, you kept your integrity. When others cheated and took shortcuts, you kept working and trusting. When others used whatever they had to get whatever they wanted, you refused to sacrifice your integrity or pawn your principles. Yet what happened? It feels like you're the one who keeps drawing the short straw of suffering. Some of you have experienced this within a relationship you gave it your all, your love was real, your commitment was true, yet to your dismay, things still fell apart. Love moved out, and loneliness signed on as your new roommate. Some have experienced this with illness, disease, and or even death. It's caused you to raise your fists toward heaven, your going to do this, God, to my child, my husband? You're going to make my mother suffer like this, God, when she's spent her whole life doing little more than helping others? Somebody 
Somebody wants to know if the pain of loss will ever heal. Will the sunshine of life ever pierce back through the dark clouds of sickness and despair? Is life anything more than an academic exercise? In many ways, in many ways, my friends, this is the scene and the setting of today's gospel lesson. It's the famous story of Lazarus. Lazarus, he's the brother of Mary and Martha. He's the one that fell ill and died. Lazarus is the one that Jesus miraculously raises from the grave. Well, as is common in the Gospels, miracle accounts are polyvalent in their purpose and manifold in their witness. What do I mean by that? They're conveying multiple messages at the same time. Miracle accounts, they speak to God's power. Miracles, they speak to God's comfort and care. Miracle accounts, they speak to God's compassion and God's kindness. Yet often they have a more specific theological meaning. Miracle accounts were often used to illustrate and even adumbrate Jesus' ultimate resurrection. And that's what's going on here with the Lazarus story. This story captures what the disciples were feeling. It captures what many who followed Jesus were experiencing at this moment. Mary and Martha become a prism through which we can view how disciples felt watching their Lord head to an inevitable death. Distress, pain, people had put their hopes in him. People believed that Jesus was the savior of the world, not Caesar. Yet it was about to all come to a violent end. The iron feet of imperial oppression were ready to trample over this upstart Jewish movement of radicals. And the one in whom so many put their hopes and their dreams in a brighter future, that very one was about to have his flesh consumed by buzzards as he hung from an old rugged cross. Thus the story, the story of Lazarus was put here to encourage the saints. It was put here to instill a sense of hope. No matter how dead Lazarus may be, no matter how dead your circumstances may appear, no matter how heavy the stone placed in front of the tomb, and no matter when God shows up to your situation, you better know that the Lord is always on time. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Martha, don't you moan. For God may not show up when you want him to show up, but the Lord is never late. That's the point that the ancient storytellers wanted to make clear. Hang him up. Call the undertaker. Sign the death certificate. It doesn't matter because the very one who called heaven and earth into existence is the same one who can speak life into a valley of dry bones. Oh, as the preachers used to say when I was growing up, that's why Jesus had to say, Lazarus rise up in the graveyard because if he just said, rose up with his power, everybody would have gotten up. But oh, my brothers and sisters, 
Oh, how I wish I could end the sermon here. How I wish, Brother Jeffrey, I could just tell you that God's going to work it out. How I wish I could just tell you that whatever you're going through, God's going to fix it before you get home this evening. How I wish I could tell somebody that the pain that you carry from your loss, the tragedy, the heartbreak, the disappointment, it will be resolved before nightfall. But unfortunately, I cannot. In the worlds in which most of us live, Heartbreak lingers on longer than the current chapter. The pain of tragic circumstances does not resolve instantaneously, nor do our friends and family members rise up from the grave. You and I must live with unresolved grief. You and I must anticipate uncertain futures while carrying unspeakable pain. Peter Weiner made similar points in a moving New York Times editorial last week. It was entitled, After Pain, Where is God? Weiner notes how so many of us try to project courage in the midst of our pain. Pronouncements of faith and performances of strength, however, are often masks that simply conceal our heartbreak. Wayner also makes a courageous theological claim of his own in the editorial. He says that miracle accounts, not unlike Lazarus or even Jesus rising up from the dead, can do more harm in the wrong hands at the wrong time. Many of us, you and I, we may still believe in God's ultimate power, but that doesn't mean that we want our grief minimized in the moment. Nobody wants their suffering overlooked. Glib theodicies and insensitive sayings like, well, everything happens for a reason, my dear sister. Or maybe God needed that child or God needed that spouse more than you did. These sorts of things that so many of us unfortunately have heard from other so-called saints during our times of suffering they only serve to pour salt in the wounds, salt in the wounds of too many of us who go to bed every night with tear-soaked pillows. There are few quick miracles in life. That's why Wayner concluded by saying that even wounds that heal still leave permanent scars. And it's with this in mind that I revisited this story this week. You may notice that when you read this entire account of Lazarus, uh, it's 45 verses. Go home, read it when you get home in your spare time. It's 45 verses. But the actual miracle of Lazarus rising from the dead is only five verses, verses 40 through 45. Five short verses, we see Jesus raise Lazarus, but for the previous 40 verses, we witness multiple encounters, emotions, and interpersonal engagements on display. The culture of movies and one-hour television dramas have conditioned us to always anticipate a climax. But those of us who are fans of literature know that the best writers 
did not focus so much on the plot. They focus on characters. Uh, whether it's Virginia Woolf, whether it's Toni Morrison, whether it's oh, Tennessee Williams, each will tell you that beauty is often found in the quotidian rhythms of life. Don't ignore the minute details of our daily existence, for in those moments, that's when miracles will often appear. Oh, consider Jesus' response to his disciples. Consider how he responded when he heard about Lazarus. Ah, oh, the disciples, they didn't want him to go. Many religious leaders in the region of Judea wanted to quiet this upstart Jewish teacher from a rebellious region known as Galilee. Some had even tried to stone him to death. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, those who walk in the light should be encouraged and not fear. It's only those who walk in darkness who ultimately stumble and fall. Thus, Jesus, his concern for his friends was greater than his fear of the unknown. He went to stand alongside those who mourn. And I believe many of us might learn a lesson from this today. How often do we mean to go see a friend that's in need? How often do we mean to pick up the phone and call that family member? How often do we, or is it our intent to purchase that plane ticket? Go spend the day or the evening helping someone else. But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to the moment, personal reasons preclude us from doing what we know is right. We may not be living under the threat of death threats like Jesus, yet still some of us become threatened by our loss of time. The sheer busyness of life holds us hostage. Our fear of the loss of time proves greater than our walking in the light of love and service. But look at Jesus. In him, we see a friend that's never too busy. This is not only true of Jesus, but it's also true of other members of the community. The Bible tells us in verse 19 that when Jesus arrived in Bethany, he sees something beautiful. The verse reads, many of the Jews had come to console Mary and Martha about their brother. Ah, uh, the story. The story doesn't tell us, I want you to make note of this, this is important. The story doesn't tell us what was said. The story doesn't tell us who was there. The story doesn't give us the pastoral or counseling credentials of those who were assembled. It just says that people showed up. Call me crazy, but I think that's there for a reason. Because the emphasis, the emphasis need not be on our qualifications. One not need to be qualified to show compassion. So often as a minister, so often people come to me and they ask me when attempting to go comfort somebody else, they say, Reverend, what should I say? They're certain that I have a pithy aphorism or some sort of deep parable to provide that will bring someone comfort. But this is the moment that I like to remix a phrase that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And that is, show compassion always. 
use words when necessary. How many here know that when you are really going through a storm of life, you don't need a meteorologist. You don't need a meteorologist. You don't need someone explaining to you the source of your storm, where it ranks in relationship to other storms, nor offering predictions about when the storm is going to end. You just want somebody to come stand alongside of you and help you hold the umbrella. When people are hurting, they don't need answers as much as they need love and care. I can testify this for myself. When I've felt terrible grief, when I've experienced profound disappointment, I don't remember what anyone said, but I do remember their warm embrace. I remember a soothing touch of comfort or even a sigh through the phone that let me know that words just weren't appropriate. Maybe this is one of the reasons why that this story gives us the shortest and one of the most memorable lines of the four Gospels. And that's the phrase, the biblical scripture that most memorized first in their lives. Jesus wept. For even Jesus, the gifted rabbi, the skilled teacher, could not contribute any words to this conversation that were more powerful than his own tears. This, my friends, it's a story about a miracle. Lazarus rising from the dead. But what I'm trying to suggest this morning is that there are many other miracles within the other minute details, the miracles of presence, the miracle of compassion, care, and empathy. These are miracles. As I take my seat, there's a parable in the Buddhist tradition that may drive this point home. The woman's story is told of a woman whose only son died. She refused to bury that son. She believed he was just sick and was falling asleep. So this woman, she went around to all of her neighbors begging for medicine to revive the young child. And many thought that the woman had gone mad. Finally, a neighbor told her to go and see the Buddha as he will have medicine for your child. The woman did this, just that. And the Buddha said to her, I can give you medicine for your healing but I need you to borrow a handful of mustard seeds from one of your neighbors. Go get a handful of mustard seeds from one of your neighbors, but this is the catch. That neighbor can never have lost a child, a spouse, a parent, or a friend. With energy and enthusiasm, she ran to her neighbors, house after house. Someone handed her mustard seeds. Yet, when she inquired about the death in their family, house after house, she heard a similar account. She heard about a beautiful child that had died of a disease. 
She heard about a beloved spouse that had perished suddenly. She heard about a beloved parent who is here no longer, house after house. But in the process, she also saw something else. She saw strength and resiliency. She witnessed people that lived with both heartbreak and appreciative memories. House after house, she came to realize that she was not alone, nor would she have to live on alone. Thus, without saying a word, this woman took her son and went back to the Buddha, placed her son in the Buddha's arms, and allowed him to be buried. Yet in her grief, she experienced the miracle and power of empathy. This is the message for us this morning. How might we be present for one another? How might we offer a miracle? Let the church say amen.